1 Corinthians. And we're going to look at chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks, sorry, to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts boast in the Lord. It was 11.30 in the morning. The walk had been hard. But the view, the view was tremendous. At 29,000 feet high, that's 8,848 metres, five miles vertically high, Edmund and Norgay looked out at the view. Literally, the top of Everest, where earth touches the heavens, and they could literally see over the horizon. Wow. What a view. The date, the 29th of May, 1953. Some of you probably remember it. Edmund Hillary Norgay Tensing, the first men to get to the top of Everest. The 1953 British-sponsored exp expedition had not left too many things to chance. Hundreds of, hundreds of tons of resource had been consumed. Hundreds of people had been engaged to get two men within striking distance of the top of Everest. But there had to be commitment. There had to be perseverance. There had to be ice walls traversed. There had to be snowdrifts to walk through. There had to be dangerous scree to be ridden. There had to be passes through terrain that humans have never trod before. All that had to be got through to get to the top of Mount Everest. But the view where earth touches the heavens. Why do I tell you about that? Well, friends, we're inviting you, as elders, we're inviting you to come on a climb with us. To come on a climb up a mountain of a book. And the book of Hebrews is a mountain of a book. It's got a high point. 
It's got a summit. That's Hebrews 10, verse 19, where literally the earth touches the heavens and earth-bound sinners like you and me can come before the holy God. Wow, the view. Literally, you can look over the horizon. At the top of Everest, you can see the curvature of the earth. You can look over the horizon. Well, come with us. Climb this book of Hebrews, and you can look over the spiritual horizon and see things in heaven. So I'm asking you to commit to the climb, people. Listen to the sermons on Sundays. Replay the sermons on YouTube. Get yourself a commentary. Come and climb this book with us. A mountain of a book. The book of Hebrews. <clears throat> David Pulse uh, sent a picture out on the, uh, the GEM WhatsApp group. And I, and I was thinking about this introduction. And this was the picture. I can persevere with God's love. A great picture, isn't it? There's a little image of what we're asking you to do. Come and climb this book of, uh, this mountain of a book with us. Yes, there's going to be some difficult passages. Yes, there's going to be ice walls to traverse. Yes, there's going to be snowdrifts to wade through. Yes, there's going to be dangerous scree to be ridden. But if you persevere, if you understand this book, when you get to the summit, ah, the view. Hopefully you'll see Christ and all he means to us. Why now? I've been asked by the elders to, uh, uh, why now? Some of you have been in the church for a long time, 20 years ago, may remember that I preached through Hebrews. It was my very first attempt at doing some sort of systematic Bible teaching. I did 20, I was looking back at my notes, I did 24 sermons on Hebrews. Um, that was 20 years ago. We've not looked at Hebrews since. Uh, why now? I mean, it's a passion of mine, I've got to say. Whenever I'm asked to speak anywhere, uh, Jason's induction service, which book did I turn to to preach from? The book of Hebrews. Because I love it. It is a personal passion. But why are we coming back to it now? Um, and I guess there was two circumstantial reasons. One, Jason would have preached it anyway, had he stayed. And his first, uh, his first uh, sermon series at uh, Grimsby has been Hebrews. Um, when we were looking at employing Aaron, I went online and looked at a few of Aaron's sermons. Guess what he was preaching on? Just by chance. I mean, they're circumstantial. I know we've been doing uh, Invest in Your Future, and that's probably not the best way of guidance, I know. Uh, but uh, um, they're just two bits of circumstance. But why now? I think I've got two very good reasons why now. Firstly, it shows us we must persevere. That's what I've just been telling uh, the children. We must persevere in our Christian faith. This was book was written by we don't know who. Um, if you read the last chapter, chapter 13, I've got to say it sounds very like Paul to me. But most scholars, most modern scholars, including Jason, tell me I'm mad. It can't be Paul for all sorts of reasons. We don't know who wrote the book. And that's probably quite good, you know, because the center of this book is Jesus Christ. And it's probably very good that all other human names pale into insignificance against this one human name, Jesus. It was written by we don't know who, um, and it was written from Italy, I think we get that from chapter 13, uh, and it was clearly written to a group of first century Jewish Christians. I think we can be very clear on that from the content of the book. We don't know where they were based. Some people say perhaps Jerusalem, perhaps Caesarea, or perhaps even in Europe somewhere, but it's a small group of Jewish Christians, and those Jewish Christians are under clear pressure, clear and obvious pressure, to give up on Christ, to give up on Christianity. They're under political pressure. 
huge political pressure. The book was written between AD 60 and AD 70. Um, a guy called Nero was the Roman emperor for a good part of that period. And there was open state-sponsored persecution of Christians. That's political pressure, don't you think? That's open persecution. Stop being a Christian or you're going to get burnt at the stake. That's pretty tough pressure. Uh, and as local Jews, if they were living in Jerusalem, there would be local political pressure too. Um, the uh, authorities were confiscating their homes, confiscating their possessions, putting them in jail for no other reason than they were Christians. That's pressure to give up on your Christian faith. Political pressure. They were under peer pressure. That as Jews, they'd been excommunicated from their uh, society. Uh, people that were friendly to them had stopped being their friends. Uh, probably the only thing they would say is, come back, come back to Moses, come back to the rites and rituals of the Jewish religion, and we can be friends again. Peer pressure to give up on their Christian faith. They were under parent pressure. Parents were having funerals, mock funerals. They were burying empty coffins. I used to have a son called John. He's dead to me now because John has become a Christian. That's serious pressure these first century Jews were under. Political pressure, peer pressure, parent pressure. And then finally they were under priest pressure. The first century Jewish priest was a very influential guy in their society. And he'd be going along to these uh, people who'd turned away from Judaism and they were following Christ and he's saying, you know what, why are you giving up on the religion of your forefathers? No, come back and be proper Jews again. Give up on Christ and come back. The pressure was immense. And these first century Jewish Christians were differing and doubting and drifting. They were on the edge of packing up on Christ. Chapter 10 tells us that. Stopping meeting together. They were in the edge of packing up on Christ and going back to the easy life, which for them was to be Jews again and follow the traditions of their forefathers. Huge pressure. And this book of Hebrews comes to them as a powerful piece of persuasion for people to persevere. A powerful piece of persuasion for people to persevere. That's what the book of Hebrews is. These first century Jewish Christians under immense pressure and the writer says, no, you must persevere. Keep on keeping on with Christ. Now, why now? Well, 21st century Christians, I'm not in any way suggesting we're under anything like the same pressure that those first century Jewish Christians were. But believe me, things are changing. Things are changing. Um, I was converted age 11, and for most of my life, um, being a Christian has been an irrelevance, really, to my friends and colleagues. Oh, you're a Christian, that's interesting. Um, don't bother preaching to me, but uh, I'm not going to bother you in your faith. You carry on. If it's good for you, that's fine. I guess that's true for most of us. Uh, Christianity is just an irrelevance to them. No one was really putting pressure on me to give up on being a Christian. Never have. Never had that pressure. The only pressure is being one of irrelevance. And do you really want to spend your time going to church and meeting with those people? No. Nowhere near the same pressure. But things are changing. Things really are changing. And uh, there's a, a media-led agenda in our society, in our culture. Um, and much of what they say we would agree with. A lot of it is Christian ethics. They use words like inclusiveness and acceptance. But friends, in amongst that agenda, there is a change. 
Christianity isn't just seen as an irrelevance. Christianity and biblical teaching on a number of issues is seen as evil. It's seen as simply wrong. There's real pressure on us, friends. Biblical teaching on things like marriage, divorce, remarriage, sexual activity, sexual identity. There's real pressure on those things. And if I stand up here and say, the Bible teaches marriages between one man and one woman, some of you will go, can you say that? That's the pressure we're under, friends. And we must know what our priorities are, and I'll tell you our priority is let's stick with Christ. So why now? It shows us we must persevere. But secondly, and probably more locally, for us as a fellowship, right now, we're without a pastor. We're in an interregnum. That's a good word, isn't it? An interregnum. And uh, this book shows us Christ. It shows us Jesus. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the Bible shows us Jesus. But much of the Old Testament is talking about the promised Messiah. It's telling us what Jesus will be and the coming one. And much of the New Testament tells us what he was. Uh, five Gospels and Acts, certainly five books, look at what he did in the past. His birth, his ministry in Galilee, his crucifixion at Calvary, his resurrection, and what he continued to do in Acts. And some of the Bible tells us on what he's going to be, the coming Lord, when he comes with his angel train. But you know the book of Hebrews shows us Christ as he is right now. Today, this very minute, it shows us who Christ is to us right now. As Christians living out our lives in 21st century Stapleford, who is Jesus to us? Well, look at the book of Hebrews and we're told. Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing right now? Chapter 7, chapter 8, he is ministering in the heavenly sanctuary and he's mediating for you and for me. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for who? For you. That's where Jesus is right now. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. The same yesterday, uh, <coughs> today and forever, chapter 13. It shows us Jesus as he is to us right now. And it's got a great message, friends. Stick with him. Do not drift or doubt or diver, but stick with the Lord Jesus Christ. Why now for us as a fellowship? Well, friends, brothers and sisters, Stapleford Baptist Church, it's the people, not the building, I guess we all know that. But let's be clear, we're given some great under-shepherds, but this church is not Jason Griffiths' church. This church isn't Simon Clark's church. This church isn't Neville Swain's church, or Brian Freer's church, or Peter Turpin's church, and sorry, my memory doesn't go any further back than that with pastors. Who was before them? Mr. Page, was it? They're under shepherds. This church is Christ's church, and all those men have now left us for good reasons. But Christ will never leave us. Why now? Because we must fix on Christ, and Hebrews shows us Christ as he is to us, even now, even today. So that's why now. Secondly, I thought as it's an introduction to Hebrews, I'd give you an outline. And I've got a very simple outline of uh, the book of Hebrews. It comes in two sections, really. Uh, click, click, click. Uh, the first section is why persevere. And this is the climb. This is going up the mountain. We get to Hebrews 10, verse 19, where earth touches the heavens and we come before the throne of God above. 
Um, <coughs> why persevere? And then the second part from uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 19 onwards, is how to persevere. That's a very simple outline of this book. And then I urge you just to remember that because the one thing I love about Hebrews is it's so logical. It's systematic. You work through it. If ever you're not quite clear where you are, then just check that outline out. And under the how, why persevere, we've got two great arguments. Argument one is what I've called the five bests. The five bests that Christ is. Five bests of Christ. How can you think of giving up on Christ because he's the best? Uh, to quote the... Uh, very famous 20th century poet and philosopher and performer, I'd like to say, you're simply the best, better than all the rest, better than anyone, anyone I've ever met. I'm stuck on your heart. I hang on to every word you say, because you're simply the best. That's Tina Turner, by the way, if you didn't recognise it. But it's not a bad little prayer of commitment, that, is it? That's not a bad little prayer of praise and commitment. You're simply the best. If you're focusing on Christ. Better than all the rest. Better than anyone. Anyone I've ever met. I'm stuck on your heart. I hang on every word you say. Because you're simply the best. The five bests. And then there's five warnings. And the rest of my time, I'm going to just go through those five bests and the five warnings. But that's all under this heading of why persevere? Why stick with Christ? Uh, but then the book goes on, Hebrews 10, verse 19 onwards, how to persevere. I'll just very briefly point this out to you. Um, in answer to the question, how to persevere, the writer gives us three answers. And you'll see I've alliterated there. I've not let you down. I've got a bit of alliteration in here. We, we uh, persevere in fellowship, chapter 10. Um, all that encourage one another, the second half of chapter 10. Do not give up meeting together. Uh, is in chapter 10, but then in chapters 12 and 13 we get quite a lot about behaviour in a church. Certainly the book of Hebrews sees the beauty of a church and the, the need for people to be in fellowship. So how to persevere in fellowship with one another, encouraging one another, helping one another. By faith, mighty chapter 11, by faith. All those heroes of faith of the past, the Old Testament saints, how did they go on despite the fact that life was throwing so much at them? How did they continue? By faith in a living God. How are we going to continue? How do we persevere? Well, in fellowship and by faith. And then thirdly, while following. Who are we following? Well, we can follow the examples of the Old Testament saints. Uh, we can follow God's word. There's quite a bit of that at the back end of Hebrews. Uh, but most important of all, by following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the outline of this book, Hebrews. Why persevere? Five best, five warnings. How to persevere in fellowship by faith while following. Not bad, is it? That's quite simple. You all got that? So what I want to do with what's the time that's left, the 15 minutes or so that's left, is I just want to focus on the five bests and those five warnings. And remember the whole focus here, this book was written by this uh, uh, first century writer to these first century group of Jewish Christians who were differing and doubting and drifting. The whole focus here is to convince them to stick with Christ and not to give up on him and not to give up on their Christian faith. And we get five bests. The first best is Jesus is the best message and the best messenger. This is how the book starts, isn't it? Chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke at various times and in various ways. God spoke. These were valid messages. God spoke. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? God spoke. 
And uh, in the Old Testament, we see God speaking. He spoke through prophets, priests, and kings. He spoke through old men and young men and old women and young women. He spoke through rich and poor. He spoke through natural events, the flood, the storm, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. God spoke in many ways at various times. He once spoke through a still, quiet voice. He once even spoke through a donkey. Old joke, but maybe he's doing the same again this morning. Meant to be a joke, folks. (laughs) Maybe he's doing the same again this morning. In the past, God spoke valid messages from God. No one's saying they weren't, they were valid. But in these latter days, says the writer, he's spoken through who? Through Jesus. Here is the complete message of God in a person called Jesus. So he's saying to these first century Jewish Christians who want to turn their back on Jesus, why on earth do you want to turn your back on the most complete message and go back to the whispers of the Old Testament? It makes no sense. You must fix on Christ. And first century Jews saw angels as the ultimate messenger from God. To be visited by an angel was, wow, particular blessing. You know, in the Christmas story, angels are very much in evidence, aren't they? And uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus, uh, uh, the writer says, Jesus is far superior to the angels. Far superior to the angels. As far superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is superior to theirs. And what's the name? The name, verse 5 in chapter 1, is the Son of God. This is God walking on earth. God's supreme messenger, God's supreme message. First century Jewish Christian, how on earth can you turn your back on him? You can't. You must fix on Christ. 21st century Christian, maybe differing and doubting and drifting this morning, how can you turn your back on Christ? You can't. Fix on him. He is the best, simply the best message and messenger. And then secondly... He's the best leader. Chapter 3. Um, there was kind of this thing, scholars think there was the, an argument that said Jews were saying, well, we follow Moses, you follow Christ. We're all all right, aren't we? There's no problem there. Uh, we can follow Moses, you can follow Christ. And uh, the argument to the Christians was, why don't you come back and follow Moses? I mean, Moses is the same God, isn't it? Um, in chapter 3, the writer explodes the myth. He says, look, Moses is just a servant in the house. He's a very good servant, but he's just a servant in the house. If you follow the servant, you're going to follow the master. Why not follow the master directly? Who is the builder or owner or master of the house? Chapter 3. And it's Jesus. Jesus. He's the one who built the house, the writer says. In fact, he built everything. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is God. Why on earth do you want to fix on the servant when you can have the master? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater all the time. Yes, Moses was good. You're interested in following Moses. That's good. But look, Moses was a servant of Christ. Why not fix on Jesus, first century, differing and doubting and drifting Jewish Christian? 21st century Christian? Who's the Lord of your life? Who are you going to fix on? May it be Jesus. Because he's simply the best leader you could ever have. Uh, Number three, and this for many people is the um, center of the book. Jesus is the super supreme high priest. The words super and supreme are mine. 
You won't find those in the book. I think in the book it's uh, great high priest, but I like super supreme high priest. He is the high priest beyond all other high priests. We get this uh, coming out in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, uh, chapter 7. In chapter 7, uh, the writer compares this high priest with the earthly high priest. The Jewish people under pressure will be told, well, why do you want the priesthood of Christ? You can have the priesthood of humans. They're here. Look, you can come and meet them. You can come and sit and talk to them. And the writer says, look, these earthly high priests, they're just men. They're just men, maybe good men, maybe got good things to say, but they're mortal. They will leave you. They will die. Their strength will fail. And these mortal men are also sinners. And they need, chapter 7, they need to make offerings for their own sins before they can make any offerings for your sins. These are mortal sinners, these priests. But this priest, he's the immortal. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's the sinless and he has made the once-for-all sin offering for you. There's no comparison. Why do you want to fix here when you can have that? First-century Jewish Christian, you must fix on Christ, because he's simply the best. He's the best high priest. He's the only mediator between man and heaven, perfectly qualified in the order of Melchizedek, chapter 5 and chapter 7. One God-ordained to be our mediator. And fourthly, he's the supreme sacrifice. Chapters 9 and chapter 10, the writer points out that all these Old Testament sacrifices never resulted in the forgiveness of one sin. You can read that very clearly at the beginning of chapter 10. Well, all these Old Testament sacrifices, the temple, constantly things were being sacrificed. Bulls, goats, sparrows, pigeons, uh, sacrifices were always there. What was the point of the sacrifice? Well, it was a foreshadowing of the great sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also it was there to remind the people just how much they owed God, just how bad their sin was. I likened it many times to uh, my very first mortgage statement. Um, in 1984, December of 1984, I bought my first house. And uh, it was 101 Frederick Road, which was just over there somewhere. And it cost me the princely sum of 15200 Now, in those days, interest rates were between 13 and 15%. Wow. Young people today don't know they're born, do they? 13 to 15% interest rates. And uh, December 1985, clunk, my first mortgage statement hit my mat. And I thought, ooh, that looks interesting. So I opened up the mortgage statement, and it said at the top, amount, I paid 1,200 deposits, so I took a mortgage out for 14,000. It said, amount advanced, 14,000. Payments made, 1,600. That's what I paid in the year. Whew, that's good, isn't it? I was on 8,000 pounds a year, and by paying the tax, that was a good chunk of my income, that was. You know, I didn't have a wife or children then, so there wasn't much to spend money on, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> There wasn't creative ideas of how to spend money, let's say that. <laughs> anyway, it's still a lot of money. I thought, wow, look how much I've paid. And then it said, interest payments, 1,800. Amount owing at the end of the year, 14,200. <laughs> so I'd ended up owing more than I started with. It's not a reminder. That was not a reminder to me of how much I'd paid. It was a reminder to me of how much I still owed. 
And that's what the Old Testament sacrifices were about. It was a reminder to the people, you've just sacrificed the best lamb. That's a reminder of just how much you owe God because you're a sinful people. And in Hebrews 10, we have this wonderful application of logic. The writer says, if the Old Testament sacrifices could ever result in the forgiveness of sins, then they could stop being made, couldn't they? If they really dealt with sin, then they could stop being made because sin's been dealt with. But they don't. They never result in the forgiveness of one sin. So, first century Jews, if you go back to the Jewish way, you're forever in this lock of having to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But not with Jesus. He made the once for all supreme sacrifice there on the cross, which really meant sins can be forgiven. And therefore, sacrifices can stop being made. And as Christians, the writer says in chapter 13, the only sacrifice we need to make is for our lives to be a sacrifice of praise. Job done. This high priest can sit down in heaven at the right hand of his father because the once for all supreme sacrifice has been made. So first century Jewish Christian, differing, doubting, why do you want to go back to all the rites and rituals and endless sacrifice of Jewish religion when it's all done for you there on the cross? You must fix on Christ because he's simply the best. Persevere in him. The going's tough at times. There's ice walls, there's snow drifts, there's scree to be ridden. But friends, brothers and sisters, you must persevere in him. And fifthly, <coughs> Jesus ushers in the better covenant, the best covenant. The old covenant between God and men, between God and the nation of Israel, had failed because men could not keep their part of the bargain. They were a sinful people, they were an adulterous nation, and the old covenant failed. But the new covenant is between God and the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose righteousness on the cross seals and signs the new covenant never to be broken. And by the time we get to chapter 10, we're reminded of the new covenant where God's going to write his law on our minds and on our hearts. He's going to transform us into people who are the children of God. We get to the summit. We're a forgiven people. Our sins have been forgotten. We're people who are children of the living God and we're told in Hebrews 10 verse 19 we can approach the throne of God above through the new and perfect way the curtain that is his body through Christ. Why on earth would you want to go back? Why on earth would you want to turn your, way, turn your back on Jesus because he's simply the best? Are you convinced, brothers and sisters? Are you convinced we must simply persevere in our faith and keep on keeping on with Christ? Now for me, I think the writer's done enough. Five bests, I think he's done enough. I think he's given us all the reasons uh, to persevere in Christ. Um, simply the best, better than all the rest, better than anyone, anyone I've ever met. I'm stuck on his heart. I'm going to hang on to every word he says because he's simply the best. But the writer is so passionate, he's so concerned for these first century differing and doubting Christians, as well as five bests, he gives very... Five very severe warnings as well. He's so worried about these first century Christians who are differing and doubting. There's five really quite harsh warnings. And um, I liken this to 
um, a parent warning a child about the dangers of a road. The parent doesn't want the child to get run over. The reason the parent warns the child, the last thing the parent wants is for the child to get run over. So they warn them about the dangers of the road. And so the writer of the Hebrews is warning these first century differing and doubting Christians the dangers of turning their back upon Christ. And um, <clears throat> I'm just, the, the passages, if you notice up there, uh, you'll see a bigger passage, Hebrews 2, uh, the passages, verses 1 to 4. I'm just going to read one verse from each passage, each one of these warnings. And I'm going to read them out quite slowly because my time is nearly gone. I just want you to feel the weight the weight of concern that the writer to the Hebrews has here. So the first warning, in the first warning we read this. How shall we escape if we ignore such a salvation? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The second warning is Hebrews 3, the passage is 7 to 4. Um, I'm just, um, sorry, 7 to 4 to 13, uh, 12. No, four, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, to 4, verse 13. I'm reading you verse 12, uh, I think, from Hebrews chapter 3. It says this, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. The third warning passage is Hebrews 5 uh, from 11 to chapter 6 verse 20 and we read this it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened if they fall away to be brought back again to repentance it's impossible for those who have been enlightened and there's various other descriptions there in the text if you read it but the point of the uh, saying if they fall away to be brought back again to repentance Strong words. The fourth warning is Hebrews 10, uh, verses 19 to 31. And uh, I'm reading verse 28. It says this, Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man or a woman deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? How do we trample the Son of God underfoot? By ignoring him by rejecting him, by blaspheming him. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? And then the fourth warning section is Hebrews 12, uh, verses 25 to 29. And uh, verse 25 says this, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Powerful warnings. He's simply the best, but there is no other option. You know, we live in a culture of superficial choice. Have you noticed that? We're kind of led into this belief that we've got choice. Uh, I remember the first time I ever went to a Starbucks. We're trying to remember when Starbucks opened in the UK. Uh, we think it was the end of the 90s, but I'm not sure about that. But I remember the very first time I went into a Starbucks, a barista coffee. 
and uh, I didn't know what I was doing. So I went up to the guy behind the till. He was a teenager, all acne and attitude. And um, <clears throat> I, I said, can I have a cup of coffee? And he looked as if, at me as if I was from Planet Zog. Can you have a cup of coffee? What kind of coffee would you like, sir? Well, how many are those? White, white or black, isn't it? <laughs> how many? Do, oh, no, sir. You can have an espresso. You can have an Americano. You can have a latte. You can have a cappuccino. Which would you like? Uh, well, what's the difference? Oh, well, an espresso is a fine, recently ground bean um, infused with hot water. An Americano is an espresso shot made to volume with hot water. A latte is an a, a, a espresso shot made to volume with hot milk. A cappuccino is an espresso shot made to volume with half dry and half wet milk. So I didn't ask him what dry and wet milk was. I went on and said, OK, uh, which is the one more like a normal coffee? Uh, well, probably an Americano. So, OK, I'll have an Americano. Uh, would you like a bit of milk in that? Oh, yeah, milk would be good. Uh, which milk would you like? Would you like skimmed milk, full-fat milk, or semi-skimmed milk? Uh, 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 skimmed milk, please. Very good, sir. Um, and which size would you like? Would you like a tall, um, grande, or venti? Is that right? Grande. I'm thinking, I only recognise one word there. I'll, I'll have tall, please, thinking that must be big, but it's actually small. If you're, a, if, you're a, if you're a Starbucks fan, for some reason, tall, which to me means big, is actually the smallest offering. So anyway, you can see I'm going through choice after choice after choice here. <sighs> I think I've done it. Uh, is that takeaway or stay in, sir? Uh, I think I'll stay in. Very good, sir. Um, would you like sugar? Uh, yeah, okay, I'll have sugar. White. You see, choice, 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 choice. Superficial choices that don't really matter. We're led to this position that we think we've got the power. We've got the choice. There was a guy who did a study on one street in London. And he walked up this one street in London. And he worked out you could have a choice of over 70,000 slightly different cups of coffee. 70,000. You need a choice of 70,000 different cups of coffee. You do not. But we're led into this belief that we've got choice in the matter. When it comes to salvation, friends, I want to tell you, loud and clear, you only have one choice. There is only one option. If you click to the next slide, Phil, I've just put it in big letters. Uh, the warning from chapter 2. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? There is only one way, and his name is Jesus. He's simply the best. He's better than all the rest, but there is no other. If you're interested in going to heaven and avoiding an eternity in hell, then there's just one way, and his name is Jesus. He couldn't have said it more clearly himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, underline it, no one comes to the Father except through me. Hebrews 10, verse 19. We, earthbound sinners, can go before the throne of our Father in heaven. Friends, he's simply the best, but he is the only way as well. We must fix on him. So there's an introduction to Hebrews, a mountain of a book. Won't you commit yourself to come and climb this mountain of a book with us? Won't you come along each Sunday? Won't you get a commentary? Won't you listen back to it? Won't you immerse yourself in the truth and wonder of this book? Won't you climb with us so when you get to the high point, you can take in the view? Why persevere the five bests, the five warnings, how to persevere well in fellowship with one another by faith and by following the great example of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless
bless you.